Hi, I'm Mike from Nashville. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on this week's program is Gideon Yego. You might know him from his work on MTV News. He's also contributed to Public Radio International's This American Life. Here's a clip from his work from the episode Big Wide World. Haider Hamza was a professional teenager. This is how his job worked. Say a group of Japanese dignitaries were coming to Iraq. The Ministry of Information would call Haider and a couple of other teenagers to come and be the face of Iraqi youth at a get-together. Or some foreign journalists would show up and want to do a story about Iraqi teens. Well, the Ministry of Information would assign Haider to be the subject. Or Haider would work as a fixer, helping reporters to find other people to interview, other kids, people who wouldn't say anything too bad about the regime. He was part of Saddam's propaganda machine, and he liked it. For me, it was kind of cool, because I was 19, I got to skip all classes at school. I didn't have to go to school. All I need to go was just to go to my professor and say, well, I'm wanted at the Ministry of Information. And Saddam's son, Uday, was the one in charge on, on, on most of the media in Iraq at the time. So I was like, oh, Mr. Uday wants, wants us at the ministry. And he was like, of course, of course, just go ahead. And I, I kept getting straight A's, and I hardly went to school. And um, and 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 the salary was I was making more money than my dad and my dad was an ambassador for like 40 years. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Gideon Yego, is a Peabody Award winner, an Emmy Award winner. He's now the host of the IFC uh, Media Project, which is running Tuesday evenings on the Independent Film Channel. It's a critical look at interpreting the news media. Gideon, welcome to the sound of young America. Thanks, Jesse. Let's start by talking about what people probably know you best at, which is your on-camera work for uh, MTV. five, ten years on, on MTV. Yes. You started at MTV before you had even graduated from college. Yeah. Now, I have heard you describe your start as thinking that you were signing up for a game show. Oh, yeah, um, how How accurate is that? It's actually perfectly accurate. I had my you're going to have to year. explain that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sure. I um, My freshman year of college, I was making money on the side by going to do trivia nights at bars in and around where I went to college, which is Columbia University, so uptown New York. And there was an advertisement in the back page of the Village Voice that had, you know, a bunch of trivia questions that said, you know, can you answer these? Call this number. So I did, and unbeknownst to me, I was calling a number which was a casting for a trivia show on MTV called Idiot Savants. And I went on that show my freshman year, and I won a bunch of stuff, and it was my first sort of what did you spin get? on the dance floor. I won like a backpack and a trip to Costa Rica. and a pair I would of have led with the trip to Costa Rica rather than the backpack. No, because I still use the backpack is the funny <laughs> okay. thing. The backpack's actually still around. It was um, really handy, but... You know, and then I was also, you know, it was my sort of first lick by the TV gods across my face and, um, and felt good. And four years later, I guess it was my the fall of my senior year at school and MTV was doing another casting in the student union up at Columbia. 
And I thought it was for another game show of some kind and just kind of went up to him and filled out the forms and whatever. And what they were actually casting for was covering Choose or Lose, which was their election coverage in 2000. And unbeknownst to me until I got there and went through the whole form and the whole process that this was going to be more than just being on a, you know, some sort of quiz show or game show or something like that. And uh, the idea that they had that year was, you know, this is prior to YouTube and current TV and user-generated content was just to send six normal kids out with their video cameras onto the campaign trail. And I wound up being their New York guy, and it all happened very quickly. And that was sort of the beginning. Did you have journalistic aspirations at the time? I had storytelling aspirations at the time. I'd always fancied myself a writer. And, you know, I went to college, and even though I graduated with a degree in history, um, I had read Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, and I'd read Boys on the Bus. And because there was an election that was happening in 2000, I I had thought to myself, well, either I'm going to go out and volunteer, or, you know, when this thing kind of came, came up with MTV, to me it was here was a chance to kind of see this stuff firsthand. Um, but I had never initially wanted to be on television, and I'd never really initially wanted to be a journalist. I'd, I'd always just wanted to be um, a writer. Uh, but, you know, uh, the older I got and the more that I read of people like Joan Didion or people like Tom Wolfe or people like Tim Krause or, or Hunter Thompson, the more that I, I realized, oh, my God, you know. These are good Halloween costumes. These are great Halloween costumes. Especially Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson. Oh, my God, yes. Um, Or dead Tom Wolfe and dead Hunter Thompson, which is more appropriate for... Oh, yes. It's more ghoulish. Right. Tom Wolfe is still alive. You can make him look like a zombie and, you know, kind of screw with people a little bit that way. How did the experience that first time doing Choose or Lose compare with your ideas of, of what it might be like? Well, first and foremost, I was stunned by how big and how powerful... Um, MTV was, and I was stunned with how big and how powerful the political machines were. You know, when you're 21 years old, 22 years old and idealistic, I mean, I think you have this vague idea that corporate America is got a lot of money and a lot of influence and a lot of science that goes into, you know, how they market and how they sell and, and what they know about their audience and demographics. And I think you have this vague idea too, that, that, that government, you know, operates and certainly the political parties operate in the same way. But then you see it firsthand and it is just sobering, just the level of anthropological and statistical detail that, you know, these private institutions or these public institutions will will go into to try and win. What do you mean when you say the level of anthropological and statistical detail? Well, you know, for, for a place like MTV in particular, they are probably bar none, the best library of sociological and anthropological data on the experience of growing up in America from 1981 until until now. And we um, should explain anywhere. for the public radio audience, MTV, it stands for music television. It's a cable television <laughs> network. It, it, it did. <laughs> that shows yeah. music videos. Or did. Uh, it, that, it, that at one time showed music videos. Right. Uh, and uh, Carson Daly and, and whatnot. And whatnot. And now it is it largely makes its money showing reality television. And I think if it would characterize itself, it would say it's, it's a youth lifestyle channel. You know, what that means obviously changes from year to year because what's cool when you're a freshman in high school is totally passe by the time you're a senior in high school and is already retro by the time you're a senior in college. So in order to stay on top of the iconography and stay on top of the language and stay relevant to the audience... Um, you know, they send out these statisticians and these ethnographers into people's homes and such and um, literally to examine them the way that an anthropologist examines a tribe in 
furthest Borneo or you know or some some or other Siberia some or, other place with a surprising accent mark on an right. unusual syllable right exactly exactly you covered this campaign essentially as a citizen journalist as a just a regular joe yeah, um, it was like an excuse not to go to grad school. You ended up taking a, a writing job at MTV News, a sort of behind-the-scenes job at MTV News after that. Yeah, enduring, because I, I didn't want to waste the year that I had there without getting some sort of real skill. So tell me, when you describe this vast market-testing machine behind music television, um, one of the great controversies in, in news is the idea that that news should be completely separated from ratings, from sponsors, from sure. entertainment, etc. I agree with that. Etc. Etc. Et how did how did this huge pool of knowledge about your target demographic? How did you see it shape what was going on television on, on MTV News? Well, you know, it was just a great education in how the media business worked working there, and you start to realize that you know, things like Fox News or MSNBC or cable news in general, you know, they will take these positions and they will rely on these tactics and they will do these things just to shore up market share, that there's no real ideological integrity, conservative or liberal to it, that there's no real, you know, it's not like, you know, Fox News now is like the National Review under under William Buckley, or that MSNBC is like the New Republic or, or something like that. It's the notion of, you know, uh, if you're selling, you know, red state lifestyle versus blue state lifestyle to rely on a very tired cliche, and that's what you're marketing. Okay, that's what you're selling. I mean, the same way that MTV is selling quote unquote youth lifestyle and showing its, you know, reality television programming. But I think the damage, certainly policy-wise, and you know, watching things like 9-11 happen and the Iraq War happen, and the way that cable news is a huge influencer on broadcast news and is just a huge influencer on the uh, dialogue in this country about politics in particular because it becomes a farming ground for these pundits and these commentators <clears throat> and these people who you know, go out and form the conventional wisdom for you know, most people or lock in the conventional wisdom for most people about politicians, policies, scandals of the day, what have you. And you start to get sick to your stomach when you see this because you realize, oh my God, you know, there is just a crass, crass, crass level of cynicism here that has nothing to do with journalistic integrity um, and has nothing to do with informing an audience and has everything to do with trying to get an audience to feel this very base emotional response, which is pissed off. Did you feel that way about the work that you were doing since you were, you know, you were doing on-camera work, running stuff for on-camera for certainly a curious sort of news outlet, but a, a real news outlet? No, no. I mean, because we looked at ourselves at MTV News as cliff notes or as, you know, a civics teacher to the audience. You know, we all of the data that we would get back was always that MTV News in particular, the audience would view us as a peer, you know, the big brother or, you know, the older dude at college or whatever who knew some stuff and was, you know, hipping you to what was going on and where that became absolutely crucial. And then, you know, the other thing that we, we also realized and, and, you know, reams and reams of data have been written about this is that. If you're young in this country, you don't consume news the way that your parents or grandparents did. You know, you don't traditionally read the newspaper or watch 
the nightly news broadcasts or even watch cable news. So we would try and provide a jumping off point for the day-to-day horse race news cycle that was taking place. So the kind of stuff that we would do was in a shorter form context, simply identifying who was who and what was what, you know, who is this John McCain guy? Who is this Barack Obama guy? Who's this Joe Biden guy? Who is this Sarah Palin lady? You know, what do they stand for? Where are they from? You know, what's a Democrat? What's the electoral college? You know, why do you hear so much about this one demographic? So that if you then tuned into something like CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or, you know, the, the, the big three networks, you'd be able to participate and follow along or have a conversation with your mom and dad. Is being the Cliff Notes patronizing? No, I don't think so. Our job was not to patronize. Our job was to empower and, and help people participate. You know, our job wasn't to tell you what we think you should know. And that's what I think is so bad about, you know, the a lot of the way that especially cable news now is, is run. Our job was trying to encourage people to participate into this thing that they were shunning anyway. One of the shows that you worked a, a lot on with MTV News was True Life, which yeah. is a, a documentary, documentary series. series. Of course. How did you learn from the other strengths of MTV in creating MTV news content? Well, it's a crash course, that place. I mean, it's 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 a lot of very young producers. And you also learn very quickly what works and what doesn't work because the turnaround on stuff is so fast. How do you define what works? You know, you, you literally air something and you see how the audience responds. You know, we focus group tested our material the same way that, that anyone else, I think, does on, on television. So, you know, there's ratings, there's focus group testing, and then there's also just sitting there in a room and having 10 people around and showing them a piece of tape and if you can blow everybody's minds. You know, that's <laughs> a pretty good bellwether. But, you know, it's entertainment, and there's specific, I think, devices that have payoffs. And so when we tried to apply some of that material towards headier topics we couldn't really make it work because we had those skills. We had that kind of, you know, visual language, that pop visual language. For example, if you're an American teenager, you don't have a lot of tolerance for seeing someone on television who's all that different from you. You know, we, we in America are very America focused. We don't really have a global outlook. We don't have a lot of global tolerance for voices or skin tones or accents or lifestyles that are not relatable to us. And, you know, you can say, well, yes, we do, or no, we don't, to, you know, varying sort of degrees and find examples that can sort of poke holes in that argument. But if you look at the middle C, you know, the, the great bulk of American media that we consume, we're, we're not very tolerant for outside voices. We're just so used to exporting our culture internationally. So that when you get something like trying to explain what the experience is for someone who's 18 years old or 19 years old in Baghdad prior to the invasion or after the invasion, you have to find a way to make them relatable to the audience or the audience is going to change the channel and they're not going to watch all this amazing, amazing things that we have to say about, you know, what these people on the other side of the gun are like. So we would look at things like the dating shows on MTV or the reality shows on MTV, like the real world and the way that characters there would be teed up to the audience you know, by revealing bits of information about their personal lives, by revealing bits of information about their interests, by running everything through this seamless filter of popular culture, which is like the unifying language. And 
with a little wave of the wand and sleight of hand, 45 seconds later, if we'd done our job right, the fact that you have a heavily accented Muslim Iraqi kid talking about driving around in Baghdad looking for fuel oil, you know, to stockpile before the invasion comes and listening to Eminem, it's far more relatable. You know, we would have to use the exact same device and we would have to use it the exact same way that we would intro you know, the Mormon kid who was coming to live in the real world house. And we would literally shot by shot and device to by device, just kind of steal that stuff. And then what are the risks? Of, what are the shot. risks of doing that? Well, I think the risks of doing that are, are, I mean, obviously you're just steamrolling over minutia that I think is always really important, but MTV is about as subtle as like a pickaxe in the face. <laughs> and if you're losing subtleties, at the expense of gaining understanding for really relevant topics of the day. And it's working, you know, with the audience and it's working with um, ratings and you're taking advantage of the enormous microphone that MTV really is towards young people in this country who, what is it, 78 million? You know, one in every four citizens in this country is 16 to 26, according to Strauss and Howe. So be it. If you can open people's eyes, so be it, even if it's not subtle. Is it 16 to 26 now? Yeah, that's what I saw. Oh, that's man, I'm so busted. <laughs> you and me both, pal. <sighs> I had to leave. Can we just make it 16 to 27 for a while? Sure. Why not? Just as long I'll as say, my show's we'll called The, the Sound odds. of Young America. Can no, no, we no. Just... That's totally cool. I mean, I big had Big to... 10 is all I'm saying. We need a big 10. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I mean, I turned 30 right before I left, or right after I left MTV and... Um, Six, well, I think well, you're still the the key demo is 16 to 32, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, but I believe it's 16 to 32. So you're in the tent. Yes, but you're familiar with Logan's Run, right? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. So I didn't want to have a situation where one of my executive producers would say, "Come, come down to the TRL studio," and there would be a bunch of people in robes saying, "He's ascending, he's ascending," and then I'd be <laughs> vaporized by some laser. You quit. Uh, <laughs> uh, you left MTV News in part to uh, pursue screenwriting. Um, when you stepped outside of that, what I'm sure was like a super intense production environment. I mean, yeah. I don't, I'm not familiar with a news production environment that isn't intense, even in the long world of long form documentary production. Right, right. How did you see, uh, the media differently from when you were inside it? I was, I mean, I left specifically to have more time to tell stories in greater depth you know, all that subtlety stuff that we were just talking about, that that was, you know, storytelling was was the thing that I wanted to make my life. Um, you know, I, I wanted to learn to do it in new ways that, to me, were more human and were more um, real in a lot of ways. But, yeah, it took a little bit of an adjustment. I mean, the first sort of project that I worked after was actually doing a story for This American Life and a story about an Iraqi kid who had wound up actually on the cutting room floor from one of the broadcasts that I had done over there at MTV. And it was totally different because instead of having to do all of this, you know, um, you know, business up front of trying to make these characters understandable, it was a chance to really sort of peel into his relationship with his family and interpersonal doubts and a lot of internal stuff that we just never really could get into, I think, with a lot of the long-form programming that we were doing at MTV. Not just because we didn't have a lot of time, but also because, you know, if any bite ran longer than 15 seconds, you know, you started to get agita because everything moves so quick and is cut so tight over there. But yeah, with the screenwriting stuff, it, it was the same thing, too. I was also not used to how long the 
filmmaking process takes and how tenuous it is. You know, when, um, when my first script was bought, I started high-fiving everybody I knew and moved to Los Angeles thinking I was going to come riding through this town on a white horse. And, you know, it was just a matter of time before Natalie Portman was pregnant with my children and I was living in Bel Air. And, and you were hooked on the white horse. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was hooked on the white horse. Yeah, it, it's it's not. <laughs> that is not the way that it is. It's much more like Day of the Locust. <laughs> and, um, you know, it took me a, a, a bit of adjustment to realize it's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll have more with Gideon Yego in just a minute. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. If you're inclined to do your giving at the end of the year, consider including MaximumFun.org and the Sound of Young America in your plans. You can pledge to give regularly if you don't already, or you can make a one-time gift. Just click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner of MaximumFun.org. Happy Holidays! Welcome back to the Sound of Young America for MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Gideon Yego, is the host of the IFC Media Project on the Independent Film Channel. You hear a lot about how young people in the United States are genius uh, media parsers because they're hit with so many inputs from so many different places and always have been. Um, they're brilliant interpreters of all this different stuff. Do you think that, to what extent do you think that is the case, and to what extent do you think that is uh, possibly oversold? Well, I think they're very savvy towards advertising, and I think they're very savvy towards marketing. I mean, I think they can they can tell when something is not real. And I think the, the notion of real and reality has a huge amount of cultural equity that it, it didn't used to have, I think, in previous generations. I think in previous generations, the notion of something being cool used to be like the penultimate you know, virtue that you could have. And now, you know, you look at like that, that Coke ad that ran, I guess it was last summer or two summers ago, where it was about these people driving around the country, trying to be documentary filmmakers, looking for, you know, real things that people were doing. And the last tagline was Coke, it's real. So I think this experience of honesty or this experience of legitimacy or this experience of non-marketing and non-sales and non you know, just trying to hoodwink people into following stuff. I think that is part of the savviness of young people is that they can just, their BS detectors are, are so well honed. But, you know, there's a lot of tricks that still work in the media world. You know, the the notion of scandal and tabloidization, which, you know, you certainly see in television is just hugely successful. You know, there's a reason that places like, you know, Us Weekly or TMZ or OK Magazine or, you know, the only really successful publishing um, uh, institutions over the last couple of years. And in large part, you know, I think the the tabloiding stuff that people, you know, people still eat up and you'd think, wow, you know, they should be able to see through this. This is just a bunch of glossy bull crap. One of the pieces in the first episode of the IFC Media Project is a piece on on a guy who, as far as I could tell, uh, packages lost little girls yeah. for television news. Mm -hmm. I've been called an ambulance chaser. I've been called every name in the book. It doesn't matter what I'm called. I'm still around. And I'm beating out 
the major networks for the Oh My God stories. Well, we're on our way to shoot two Fox shows, and I have all the ammunition I need to be able to go and get the truth out there. The most exciting part for me on this is that I have now become part of the story. That seems like the lost little girl thing seems like a, a, a such a powerful narrative that it just comes up over and over and over again. In fact, the in the introduction, you're you're sitting at a at a shoe shine stand, um, and there's a current lost little girl, which the guy be next sitting next to you doesn't recognize, but he immediately rails off three or four other ones that are basically exactly the same. Yeah. Um, and of course, mentions the salient point that they're all lost little white girls. Yeah. And tell me about how this push to narrative and storytelling can shape what what makes it onto television when, you know, television news is uh, driven by a need to to lock people in and and people are driven by a need to hear what happens next in a story? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, everybody's familiar with the term infotainment. And, um, you know, infotainment operates the exact same way that entertainment operates. There's agents, there's managers, there's pushers, and there's tons of money to be made. Tons of money to be made. Whether it's for proprietary deal, you know, deals that specialists, forensic specialists strike with, you know, specific news programs, down to book deals, merchandising deals, appearance fees, the potential to spin things off. And, um, you know, there is this bottom feeding class of suffering peddlers who come and market this stuff at the expense of real news. And, you know, whether it's the situation, I guess the most recent one was Kaylee Anthony, the little girl in Florida who, you know, whose, whose mother was accused of killing her. But obviously the Natalie Holloway story is you know, such a hugely familiar one where there was Elizabeth Smart. And this is not news. You know, these, these scandals, these horrible tragedies, which they are, do not merit the airtime at the expense of, you know, budgets for reporters budgets for keeping news news bureaus open internationally and really raising the caliber of journalism in this country. It's just sort of this run towards the lowest common denominator that news directors and um, a lot of these, specifically cable channels, I think are most guilty of doing this, um, do to ensure a slight advantage, I think ratings-wise, but over the long term, just sully journalism. You know, it's a craft. It's not a science. It's a craft, you know, I think the OJ trial was probably the first one that broke through on any of this is that, you know, if people are going to watch this stuff the same way that they watch Days of Our Lives, are going to watch this stuff the same way that they watch, you know, The Bold and the Beautiful as a soap opera, which every day when you check in, there's new information about, well, you know, we want to focus on one of the guys who's actually pushing these stories and trying to market this stuff so that these soap operas can continue, you know, when the next scandal dies. Where's the next one coming up? And and the funny thing about the guy that we profile is he loves his job. He does. God bless him. You know, he loves his job. He feels like he's doing a service to America, entertaining them with real people and real tragedies. We just disagree. <laughs> what is an example of a way to get a deeper understanding of what's going on in the media? Speaking from your perspective of, as somebody who you know, uh, has spent 10 years working, working very hard behind the scenes in news. Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we really try to do is we try to not just tear it down, but also show where journalists get it right. 
And I think there's something so incredibly refreshing about watching a, watching a well-done piece of journalism or a, just a really well-done news broadcast or looking at, you know, somebody who really does expose a story or puts himself on the line in the major way to, to pull something off. And I think that's probably it is if we can point anybody in the right direction of somebody who's doing something right or point them into the direction of something that we think is a, is a higher standard. And you can see that and be refreshed and renewed in the capacity of what journalism can be. Well, then maybe there's, there's a way that we can all correct, you know, how kind of messed up and screwed up and banged up the process is right now. And, turn this tsunami of, of media into something that serves the commonwealth and the common good and informs people. Well, Gideon, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the San Diego America. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks uh, for having me. Gideon Yego is the host of the IFC Media Project, which is uh, currently airing Tuesday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern on the Independent Film Channel. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself, interstitial music provided by Dan Wally, our intern is Casey O'Brien, the show edited by Nick White in Chicago. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, and if you ever want to email me, you can do so. It's jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you online and next time right here on The Sound of Young America. <laughs>